0: Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here's my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we're discussing the new sci-fi thriller High Life, which is directed by the acclaimed French filmmaker Claire Denis. Starring Robert Pattinson, a baby, and an ensemble cast including Juliette Binoche and André 3000, it takes place in a spaceship on a long-distance journey toward a black hole. Um, so kind of before we go on, like just a little disclaimer, um, we both agree that this film is actually best viewed without knowing much, if not anything in advance, but we kind of recognize that this is a relatively obscure new art film um, and we understand if most listeners haven't watched it yet. So kind of the first part of this podcast will be completely like a spoiler free as we can manage. And then we'll kind of go into some more spoilery stuff in the second half.
1: Yes. So I think we're going to start by talking more generally about the production and uh filmmaker actor side of things and then we'll sort of slowly transition into plot and themes and then sort of go into more detail i saw this at niff last year which some of you may remember from our um film festival podcasts and really wanted to see it again and then due to uh, a series of unfortunate events and the fact that it was playing in New York for around three weeks did not get to so I'm not as fresh on this movie as I would like to be but um, if you did listen to those episodes you will perhaps remember me refusing to say anything about it because I was just like you need to see this without knowing anything (laughs) so we are going to try to avoid discussing things until we get to a certain point this was obviously not a blockbuster so it will not have come out in certain places in america yet so we're gonna try to sort of thread the needle here but um we will do spoilers in full at the end so for sort of americans in particular who may not be familiar with her work we thought we would give a little bit of a intro to claire denis I think is a really interesting figure I mean she's an interesting figure period because she's interesting and she's one of the best filmmakers alive her masterpiece Beau Travail which came out in 1999 and is a sort of retelling of Billy Budd the Herman Melville novella which I have not read was one of the first movies I saw in college in like my intro film class and it was the first thing I wrote an essay about in college for like a film essay i hadn't seen it since college and i saw it at a retrospective here around a month ago and it is like this isn't a podcast about but it's one of the best movies ever made period like everyone go see it so i knew of her from when i was 18 like she's just considered like one of the great directors right but she was always very niche and french like an art yeah this is her first
0: english language film yes And I assume it's going to, even though obviously it's not been like making bank, I assume this will end up with a wider audience, partly because it stars, you know, some famous people like Robert Pattinson, and partly because it's on a spaceship. And I do confess that if you put something on a spaceship, it will make me significantly more likely to watch it, which is how I wound up, well, part of how I wound up watching this film, which is obviously technically a spaceship movie. But for reasons we will discuss soon, it's not like, oh, here's a traditional spaceship movie.
1: (laughs) No, not at all. Her movies are very, I haven't seen as many as I would like. A lot of them are very difficult to access in the US, which I think may possibly change soon, because she is kind of having this interesting moment within the past couple of years, I think partially due, genuinely. To Barry Jenkins, who is just fucking obsessed with her. He loves her so much <laughs> to the point where it's like a little bit
0: weird. Oh, that's Moonlight director uh, yes. Barry Jenkins, by the way, for those who do not have a Rolodex in their brain.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's really charming and great. But I think if I were she, I would find it like slightly odd that this random American man was just like, talking Johnson about Johnson is also
0: like a really big fan.
1: Yeah. So she was really influential, I think, on a lot of this. Like that generation, sort of 30 something. Yeah. Directors. She is
0: 73.
1: Yeah. And um, she is now in the English speaking world, I think, has suddenly become known in a wider sense as like one of the great master filmmakers alive, which I think must be quite surreal if you're this like older French woman who's been making these like tiny, tiny art films your entire life. And then all of a sudden, all of these like, big American film people are like obsessed with you I saw so I saw this movie at the film festival and in the uh, auditorium where they show movies there is really really big and she was there and did a and a after like the audience response to everything that she said and just like her coming out <laughs> in general like we were all just like clapping like crazy and just sort of laughing hysterically at every funny thing she said and she clearly was just sort of looking around like what the fuck is happening (laughs) like I don't understand
0: this well it's also like her her filmography which I'm you know not an expert in but her filmography is like all relatively dark often quite circuitous stories not sort of like here's an accessible indie drama which has like one famous person in it sort of thing it's like oh this is some like bleak and or difficult to understand stuff (laughs) she makes
1: really sort of existentially despairing often movies that have similar themes to this film that we'll discuss in a bit um but they're they're not easy films like they're really difficult and this movie is really difficult also and they're not movies that you can sort of easily explain like this is what this is about and um there's a reason I think that until recently she was considered by like super film snobby people to be one of the great directors but hadn't reached a wider audience at all. And like her, her movies just aren't that accessible, Um, which doesn't mean they're not watchable. Like Beau Travail, it's about these soldiers in the French foreign legion in uh, I think Djibouti. And um like, you had to do all these sort of weird, like, training rituals that are very eroticized. And there's all this stuff going on with the tension between various people in the group, and then they're in the town also. And it's really, really mesmerizing and compelling. But it's not a movie where you watch it and you're like, oh, yes, I understand what that meant immediately, right? Like, it's, it, there's a lot of it that is just kind of hits you on a visceral level. And I think that's what she does so well, is that you feel things very viscerally watching her movies, but you don't necessarily intellectually grasp them immediately, if ever. And so it's not a huge shock that she hasn't been like an especially lucrative filmmaker. However,
0: it does make sense that Mr. Pattinson would seek her out, which he did very assiduously. So probably many of our listeners are aware of this, but some may not be in his post-Twilight career, Robert Pattinson has been even more of like an indie movie hound than Kristen Stewart. Like both of them have definitely had like by far the best careers of people who got famous from a franchise. Like they basically were just like, we've done our money jobs and we are now going to do, in Robert Pattinson's case, exclusively dark and often quite ambitiously weird indie dramas. Um, Kristen Stewart's done like a couple of bigger films like Snow White and the Huntsman, but largely she does that kind of stuff as well. And in Robert Pattinson's case, he intentionally was like really seeking out Claire Denis. He was so keen to work for her. Um, this film was like, it took like five years for them to get it made. Like when she initially thought of the idea, she wanted a much older man in the lead role, sort of like a Philip Seymour Hoffman kind of figure, Um, which you can kind of imagine, like when you're, after you've, like if you've watched the film, because it's sort of like this paternal thing where he's got this baby and stuff, but it obviously works brilliantly well with Robert Pattinson. Um, and he sort of met with her and through sort of, charm and intellect persuaded her that he should have this role. And they've just had this amazing sort of public muse bromance relationship unfold in the public eye of indie cinema.
1: (laughs) Well, it's been amazing to watch because listening to her talk about it was interesting. I think she literally did want to cast Philip Seymour Hoffman and then he died. Like not that they had, you know, they had cast him or anything, but that was what she had wanted to do. And then obviously that didn't work. And that Robert Pattinson literally for years was like, I must have a meeting with this woman. And then finally, so, you know, her agent or whatever, like convinced her to take the meeting. And she was like, okay, she had seen him in things. She thought he was amazing in Twilight, which is incredible because having now seen that movie, I Yes, we I have disagreed. watched and
0: podcasted about that film. And much as I am a Kristen Stewart stan, bad film, just as yeah. bad as everyone says. Yeah, they're not good. And he's not good. He's especially not good at it. Yeah, no.
1: (laughs) But she just was resistant to meeting with him. The interviews that they give are really interesting. She says she just always is anxious meeting with actors. She just doesn't like to do it, especially when someone is sort of pursuing her, basically. It's like, ugh, like, no. But um, they had this conversation, and she said at the Q&A that I went to, she was just like by the end you know he was he was just in the film like it was him he was in. and i was there with a couple of friends and we were like what happened in this conversation like what did he do i just it-
0: well what was really funny is like i read an interview with him where he was like oh i had this one thing that i want to tell her to use as like my weapon that was the term he used and he couldn't remember what it was <laughs> Six years ago by that right. point.
1: Right. And yeah, so then he stayed attached to the project for I think four or five more years before they finally got it made.
0: And obviously, by this point, he's now like 33, so it's like a more appropriate age.
1: Yes. And he's now done all of these other super acclaimed movies, which he had not at all at that time. And so the whole thing is just like crazy to me. And then they've done all these interviews together where it's clear that they both just like adore each other. They're making another movie together, which I just, it really warms the cockles of my heart. I found it genuinely like very, (laughs) very touching and moving and just delightful. A friend of mine has sort of like her test for sort of trusting insofar as that's possible. Like male famous people is essentially like whether female famous people like them or they have, like, a relationship. Especially right? if
0: it's an older female f- famous person. Right. And Like, so, if there is a powerful older woman who will voluntarily associate with you.
1: <laughs> right. And it just, it just is so... Like, I liked Howard Pattinson anyway and had a good opinion of him. But this is just... It's just really nice to see a young actor that enthusiastic about a female director mm-hmm. and like he said in interviews also that he's like really wanted to work with various other female directors and it, it clearly it's just like he's just into it he, he just, just likes loves movies but it's
0: also like he is not sort of like i'm making a feminist statement like he just loves indie cinema and he loves all yep. of these like women directors who are making interesting films that he finds compelling i i love to watch artistic partnerships play out like it's just really interesting to hear people kind of discuss their work if they have a really fruitful collaboration um and this one's just like particularly interesting because it's so sort of unexpected and also it does kind of fall within the kind of traditional bounds of like a muse director relationship (laughs) but obviously most of the time the gender roles are swapped and it's a lot sleazier like it comes across as because like, you often get these relationships where like you will have like this auteur director and a much younger woman who've made an amazing film together but the way that the director is talking about the actress is like doesn't sound that respectful <laughs> and in this <laughs> case you've got this situation where like Claire Denis makes very sexual films and sort of like she she definitely kind of like appreciates the male form and stuff. And like, they have this really close relationship, but it's not sleazy at all. And you hear kind of like the other people she works with sort of like, I read this interview with Mia Goth, who's this wonderful young actress who was in this and Suspiria and various other quite dark films like Nymphomaniac. And she sort of like, she said, you know, Claire Denis has this very kind of maternal energy on set. She's very nurturing while also being this creative genius. And I'm like, my God, what a great workplace environment. And there's, <laughs> I read this like great quote from, um, one of the interviews with Robert Pattinson where he was kind of talking about Claire Denise's process. So he said, there's something in the way she shoots that's very sensual. I very rarely find this synesthesia-like quality where you watch her movies and you can really feel what they feel like. I remember talking to her about it. She said this really beautiful thing that when she looks through a camera, there's this feeling of wanting to touch but being afraid to. And she, And so she uses the camera as her hand, which very much reminded me of what you said, she said about her being nervous about approaching actors. And i yes. just—it's fantastic, like cohesive <laughs> image I now have of this. <laughs> yes,
1: yeah. One of the things she kept saying about him was, like, he doesn't. In various interviews I've read, is like he doesn't understand that, like, he's such a charismatic person for me because he, of course, is being like, why would she want to talk to me? I'm no one like I just then she's like this big genius she was like no
0: especially <laughs> like, when he was initially approaching her he would have been just out of twilight and much younger whereas now yeah. it's like he really is someone where people are fucking seeking him out you know
1: right and so yeah I just the sort of symbiotic nature of it is really two people who
0: to just me. really appreciate each other's work
1: <laughs> right it's it's great and and he is so good <laughs> in the movie. I still think his best role is in Good Time, which was from a year or two ago. But um
0: Yeah, I've got that bookmarked. Um it's on Netflix, so
1: it's great. And it's very, very different from this, which is interesting if you, you know, compare the two of them. He's playing a con man in good time, like a really like very low rent con man. Like he's not an impressive person. Um
0: it's and one he's of his very- many bad hair roles.
1: Oh yes. And he's very kind of manic, and he has this Queen's accent, and he talks a lot, and it's just like a big performance. But it really works. Whereas in this movie, he has very, very little, little dialogue. And it's very, he's very kind of reactive, like he's watching a lot of stuff that's happening. And a lot of the performance is with this baby, who is an amazing baby. The baby is so good incredible baby performer (laughs) and it's actually it was like the baby of some friends of his so he already knew it's her and um, he cast her basically because they had had this other baby who was just like screaming the entire time and they did like a week or two of shooting and everyone was just like this is not going to happen so they wound up with this other baby and like the whole first section of the movie basically is him With this just baby. And it feels completely natural in a way that was very mesmerizing to me.
0: Yeah. And it's also, it's like something that you don't really see. You don't really see people having a relationship with a baby on film, right? Partly because of the purely pragmatic concern Of, like, you have to fucking film with a baby. Like, and it's like, and there's like a lot of union rules about filming with babies for obvious reasons. And also, like, the type of stories that one sees in most films are, you know, there's a lot of childbirth, but there's not a lot of scenes where people spend extended lengths of time interacting with a baby. And this is, I think, the first film I've seen that's like that.
1: Yeah. I mean, It's also, I think, just from a logistical standpoint, once you have multiple adults in the room with the baby, right, then from the baby's perspective, it just becomes a lot more complicated
0: to sort of deal with. Whereas he was literally just like, essentially, he was just babysitting a baby while a camera was pointed at him for several hours. (laughs) And you
1: can tell that a lot, like, there are certain things that he says that are obviously scripted and that have to do with the whole, like, the theme of the movie and whatever, but a lot of it is clearly him just sort of like baby talking to the baby and like they're sort of wandering around and I'm sure they had many many hours of footage of that and then cut together the you know best parts but it's the kind of acting that it's not that it doesn't look like acting because it's a guy in a movie right but it's not the sort of acting that he's doing in the this other movie I was talking about where he's like it's not rattling off acting. a bunch of big dialogue and has weird hair and is, you know, doing an accent. He's just like playing with a baby. But most people would not be able to do that on film in a convincing way. And it really sets up the movie in a compelling way because if you don't if you don't find that stuff emotionally compelling in the rest of the movie, doesn't work at all. It would just be like way too nihilistic. It's already pretty nihilistic. Yeah, because he
0: doesn't he has voiceovers but he doesn't have a lot yeah. of dialogue and this, all the stuff that you learn about him you kind of infer from a handful of flashbacks but mostly just the way he's behaving kind of first with this baby and then when you see the earlier parts of the chronology of the story like you see him interacting with the other characters
1: uh, so let's move on finally to what actually happens in the movie so if we've sort of talked around <laughs> as much yeah. as possible
0: uh, yeah we've actually managed to talk talk about this for like a solid you know 15 yeah. to 20 minutes <laughs> without saying what yeah. the film happens
1: yeah, so if you don't want to know anything about the movie, stop here. But, um...
0: Yeah, this will be a mildly spoiler-free right. section now. So,
1: <laughs> basically, the setup is that um, there's this spaceship that's just a box, which I love. She said in an interview that, like, she talked to people and they were like, there's no reason that it has to be, like, aerodynamic. Like, spaceships can look like whatever the fuck. And she was like, great, it's gonna be a
0: box. <laughs> Literally, it's just a box in space. And, um... I was thinking about the box shape as well while I was watching because it is literally a box. But I was thinking in terms of the way it is arranged, it's kind of like a body because you've got like a section that's sort of the digestive system and you've got a section that's the genitals mm-hmm. and you've got a section that's kind of the sleeping area and then the brain.
1: Yep. I hadn't thought about that, but you're definitely correct. There's a, it starts with the, there's this sort of garden where they're growing food and the stuff that's this very you know, potent image in the movie for reasons I don't even need to explain. You can all sort of imagine. And um, yeah, that's where the movie begins. And that's the sort of, you know, part of the place. But um, it is the, the concept is that all of these people on board, most of them are death row convicts and they have been sent on this mission to go toward a black hole to basically study whether they can like get energy out of the field around the black hole. Which like obviously there is energy in that area. Like we know that from physics, but um, I mean it's
0: a very similar premise to both Sunshine and Interstellar, like the kind of general yes. journey concept, but sort of everything else about it like tonally is yeah. different and it's a lot bleaker.
1: But so that's like the underpinning of the idea, but most of the movie doesn't actually isn't really about that. And Instead, you have this scientist played by Juliette Binoche, tremendously, who is performing these sexual experiments on the people, yeah, there. or
0: rather, reproductive experiments. Like there was a lot of kind of sexual content in the film, but she is—it's reproductive.
1: <laughs> we'll get into that. Uh, yeah, so she's trying to um, artificially impregnate the female prisoners uh, because she's like obsessed with babies and reproduction and it keeps not working.
0: And Robert Pattinson is the only man who refuses to jerk off into a test tube because he's this sort of monk-like figure.
1: And and I guess the one other thing I'll say here now is that there's a space in the ship called the fuckbox where you can go to masturbate. And this was one of the things that immediately got tweeted out after it premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival, was everyone talking about the fuckbox box? <laughs> which I
0: completely missed because um, all I knew was that this film was really kind of Morgan was like oh this film's really upsetting to the point where I went into it being like this is going to be the most upsetting film I've ever seen it wasn't at all however I was completely unaware that it was like a sex movie until like the title card came up and it was like sexual violence and extreme sexual content I was like my goodness
1: (laughs) yeah I mean I found it it's not like the most violent movie ever obviously but I found it like incredibly existentially upsetting. It's
0: very intense but not gratuitous. No.
1: Um there is certain there is some violence which we'll discuss but it's there's that's not really what the movie's
0: about. It's about the violence inherent in the system, Morgan. So the
1: genre stuff is interesting. We're going to still try to be a little bit broad before we narrow into the specifics. Because it's obvious it's like it's a space movie. But she has said multiple times that she didn't think she was making a science fiction movie. And, like, I'm not very interested in sort of, like, genre arguments. And I don't think she massively is either. But but she has said that. She said that at the Q&A that I went to, and she said it in a couple interviews. And her explanation for that in one interview that I found on the AB Club that we'll link to. We're going to have a lot of links for this episode because there's been a lot of good interviews and um, writing about it was so the interviewer says you don't consider high life science fiction. And she says, because everything in it is already known the existence of black holes, the energy in a black hole. I've done the reading. I'm not inventing aliens or creating a new space colony or anything. I love stories like that, but it was not the purpose of this film. And so think I think that's interesting just in terms of considering like what the movie is about and what it's trying to do, because again, I'm not, I don't care about like what people's personal like definitions of science fiction are. Like obviously this is a movie that like takes place I
0: I also don't think this is a situation where like oh a literary person is snobbishly starting to distance herself from sci-fi. Like it's not at all like that.
1: More interesting about that is that I what I was thinking about it when I watched it, or more after the fact. Because I had seen 2001: A Space Odyssey in the cinema not long before seeing this, they ha- they re-released it, and I hadn't seen that since college. And that's obviously one of the best movies ever made, and it's a really fascinating film. And I kept thinking, while while watching that, and then after the fact, meaning 2001, about how like every space movie is just redoing 2001, like everything since then, mm-hmm. like all science fiction films in space are just reiterations of that film and many of them are very good but it's a testament to the definitiveness of 2001 that like no one can
0: especially like also i would say the smarter the space movie the closer it is to 2001 because when you get something like interstellar you're like well done on making 2001 and when you get like a fucking dumbass space movie you're like all right you've managed to veer quite far away from 2001 like well,
1: this, so, but this <laughs> is the thing is like i don't think high life is like 2001 almost at all except in because it's right. a prison
0: movie it's not it's a prison movie that happens to this take is place what in I'm a saying space box is
1: that, like she basically said she was like it takes place in the void which it does but you could also say that about prison right and yeah. so i think the space thing is more just a convenient setting for other things that she's concerned with and she uses the space imagery in a way that's very compelling. Like right at the beginning of the movie, the first thing that happens is Robert Pattinson is like disposing of the corpses of all of these people out into space. And it's this just like really eerie sort of horrifying image, which obviously can only happen in space. Uh, So I really liked that she was using that stuff, but also basically just doing her own Thing without using all of these genre tropes. I like those genre tropes too. Like I love me a good space movie, but I just thought that what she was doing with this was a really inventive way of like using this setting, but also basically just being like I'm doing whatever the fuck I want. And consequently, like this movie is very like a lot of her other films um, thematically. But I don't like I've never seen a movie like this. Like it's completely just this weird thing.
0: Yeah. Well, I was thinking like how you could describe this film, right? It's like oh, there's this acclaimed like female filmmaker who's made this amazing sci-fi movie starring Robert Pattinson it's got these amazing themes about gender and it's you know this ensemble cast who get picked off one by one and it's like technically all of those descriptors are accurate but if I someone described that film to me and I saw this film I'd be like that's not what (laughs) I was expecting (laughs) because it's like because it's like you fundamentally don't really you're not meant to care very much about like oh who dies first or whatever like even though it's really disturbing and like it really you know fills you with question marks at the beginning to be like oh why are all of his crewmates dead and you kind of immediately start to think of him as this quite threatening figure because like why is he the survivor and stuff like that but ultimately that's not the sort of thing you're thinking about by the end you know like annihilation that sort of film it's more about emotional thematic underpinnings of the kind of overall story and sort of the visual imagery and stuff
1: yeah, I mean this is what I was saying about her movies earlier, right? Is that I mean, you actually had a note about under the skin in another section of the document, but this connection for me is like both of those are movies that are so kind of like they're appealing to your id in a certain way, and that like the you're just supposed to be taking them in kind of like the you know Well, there's
0: sort of like the connection between the gloopiness of having a human body and then the horrifying void of philosophically existing. Yes,
1: that also. (laughs) That that would be the thematic element versus the aesthetic (laughs) element, both of
0: which are relevant. Oh, actually, in terms of the visuals, part of the reason why this film looks different is like it's got kind of an interesting design background. So along with the fact that it's set inside a box, so the interior of the spaceship is intentionally not futuristic-looking, Um, It basically just looks like they're living in a lab and dormitory, which I assume was very cheap to film. Uh, But um, it just looks quite everyday intentionally because the film, a lot of the film is just about everyday rituals, both with Robert Pattinson and the baby and before when all the people were alive. But also in terms of the the visual style of lighting and the way they depict the black hole in space, um, that was actually all done by um, Olafur Eliasson who is an Icelandic visual artist like he mostly does really big large-scale installation art and I think if there's pieces that people might be familiar with he did one in New York that was sort of these artificial waterfalls and the one that I personally am familiar with was in the Tate Modern when I was a teenager and um, so the Tate Modern has this huge kind of empty warehouse space where they have like a really famous artist will get to fill this space for like six months or a year or something. And the one that he had was just this giant sun um, because a lot of his work is just about kind of experiencing the natural environment in some way. And a lot of that is to do with light. And he's really into this particular type of sort of dusky yellow light. And the experience of being in this huge hall with the sun is just so effective because, I mean, he's managed to kind of create the effect of being in the room with the sun and you can. Kind if of, your brain is like wow it's really hot but obviously it's just like a fucking giant <laughs> light bulb you know um, so he's like it's very it's very impressive work I'm obviously not an art critic so I'm not wording this very well but um, he's, he has done like a lot of interesting projects like he collaborated with Ai Weiwei on this kind of online thing that was like he created the moon on a website um, with like a kind of collaborative thing with other artists. So he's kind of a sci-fi person. He really likes black holes and he and Claire Denis bonded over their shared love of black holes like <laughs> years before they made this film. So they actually made a film together like five years ago that is like a short film that is just sort of this these strips of yellow light that sort of ended up being reused in this movie. And at the very end of this film, um, which isn't a spoiler, there's just like a shot where He's just—they've used this yellow light to light Robert Pattinson's face, and just this really beautiful way because Robert Pattinson has a very interesting kind of angular face, which is another reason I'm sure why he's popular with a lot of <laughs> filmmakers. Um, but it's sort of like the exact yellow light that Olafur Eliasson uses in a lot of his work, including *The Sun*. It's just like what a what an interesting collaboration you've got here. Claire Denis has so many interesting friends. Yes,
1: <laughs> including um, the
0: composer whose name escapes me. Oh yeah. Yeah, he, he has like a Stuart something, but he has like a band name that he works with. Yes. But she's had like the same composer in like five movies.
1: He has a very thick um, Northern English accent and she is French and they can't understand each <laughs> other. <I> <laughs> like they basically don't, oh, can't communicate linguistically, she has said, and um, <laughs> they just sort of understand each other. They just have a vibe. Which I think is amazing. It's very inspirational. <laughs> she said she said in some interview they basically will just be like yelling just sort of increasingly yelling like Yes, yes at each other. <laughs> Which uh, it
0: just wow. Yeah. That's very beautiful. Um
1: so I think there's no there's nothing more we can say about this without actually talking about it. I think we've really maxed out. I mean, this is, we've got a half an hour. I think that's very impressive without actually really talking about what happens in this film in any detailed way. So um, spoilers now.
0: Yeah. Okay, let's tell the audience. I'm sure some people are listening to find out what this film is about anyway. So let's give it to them. Yes. This film is very non-linear, yes. first of all.
1: Yeah, it starts out with the big baby chunk and then sort of goes backwards.
0: Yeah, and the kind of bulk of the central part of the film is the story of when all of these inmates were still alive and it sort of gradually revealed to you what's happening. So at first it's not even fully clear they're prisoners but then you find out they're prisoners and that they're all there for various crimes that aren't relevant at this point. And Juliette Binoche is trying to impregnate the women and also, there is a fuck box where people could go and recreationally have sex with like a yes. sex machine. Which has the, there's this like amazing scene where where Juliette Binoche goes and has sex with this fuck machine, and it was just like you've had an amazing career. I cannot even imagine what it would be like to watch the entire Juliette Binoche filmography because she has made one hundred billion films. And they range from a very large quantity of independent French dramas which are highly acclaimed to the fucking 2015 Godzilla movie which I'd forgotten until I was looking her up on Wikipedia and was like "Uh, what?
1: Gotta buy that summer house. That's the explanation. She
0: turned down Spielberg. She turned down working with Spielberg on Jurassic Park and was like 20 years later I'm gonna do this garbage Godzilla. But you know I respect every single one of her choices.
1: Yeah. Watching <laughs> that scene, I was just like, I genuinely do not know that there is another actress in the world who would be like, let's
0: do it. Sign me up.
1: <laughs> it's just, it, I mean, there are no words. It's really quite something. Um,
0: I mean, not to stereotype, but the French. <laughs> oh, no.
1: But even have a thinking freedom. of like other super famous French actresses who have done very explicit sexual things. Like, yeah. I just saw Isabella Bear in a play that where she did stuff American actresses would not. I There's just something about that scene where I was like, you know what, you are in your own territory. This is
0: just... Well, it's animalistic. And I also, something that was just like one of my absolute favorite details in this film was her wig. Yes. Which, FYI, is like completely indistinguishable from real hair. It looks like real hair, Um, unlike most wigs in cinema, which is a topic that we routinely discuss. <laughs> um, but in this film, Juliette Binoche, who is in her mid th- mid fifties, um, and so like twenty years older than most of the rest of the cast, um, she has like below waist length black wavy hair, which sometimes is in uh, kind of a sometimes braided, and most of the time is kind of like flying free. And she has this scene where she has this really kind of explicit like sex masturbatory scene where her hair is kind of sticking to her back and it's really wild, and it just kept making me think about sort of the the imagery of older women with long hair is like very clear and sort of throughout our society like the way it's viewed is like older women have short hair or very neat hair and only young women have long hair because that's sort of youth and sensuality and it's it just maybe it was like the opposite of Jennifer Lawrence's wig in Mother, a film <laughs> which I hated where she has this very fake looking long braided wig which is sort of looks like these, you know, it looks like a sheaf of yes. corn, you know, and it's all about how she's this beautiful sort of Demeter-like maiden. And in this film they like really intentionally draw attention to Juliet's hair and she at one point is literally like, oh I know you all think I look like a witch, because what witches look like is they have long hair but they are sexually free older women. And that is is, like the definition. And when people see an older woman with really long hair like they have extreme reactions like the archaeologist historian Mary Beard in the UK um is just this very kind of average looking older woman with long gray wavy hair who appears on television and people fucking lose their minds that there is an older woman with like unstyled long hair on television they cannot handle it the amount of backlash i mean obviously she gets backlash in general cuz she's just like a intellectual woman on tv but it's like the hair makes people go bonkers i didn't
1: know that about mary beard but i'm not remotely surprised to hear it
0: yeah because she isn't yeah. styled she just looks yes. like an academic and her hair is like you do not see older women in the public eye with long wavy hair but it's like oh she must be like a weird hippie it's like it's just hair my buddy <laughs> just hair
1: <laughs> yeah the whole juliette binoche situation in this movie is really something so she when well, you find out at a certain point like she murdered her child children i can't remember if it's one
0: or multiple child yeah. children yeah Um, Claire Denis was intentionally kind of setting her up as a Medea figure.
1: And so that's why she's been sort of selected to be on this mission. And like there is a captain of the ship, but she clearly is the person who's in charge. And um, she becomes very obsessed with Robert Pattinson because he's the one person who won't give up his semen and winds up like masturbating him while he's asleep to get it to use to impregnate this other woman. Which culminates in her literally like running through the spaceship with a handful of semen, which I also had seen on Twitter and it was just like, what the fuck is this movie? Like fuck box and semen, like wh- what?
0: And it's, it's not lurid as well. And they have like a really interesting juxtaposition of two rape scenes because they have a rape scene where one of the male inmates has, I guess what you could describe as a traditional rape scene. Like he attempts to rape a young woman and is then fought off. And then, like, very soon afterwards, they have this scene where um, Juliette Benoist's character is just like, she's uh, knocked out all of the people on board with drugs. And she's sort of like, essentially, like, rubbing herself over Robert Pattinson. And, like, she's clearly thinking of this as sort of like, it's a power play, but it's also seductive. And she's like, her mind is like so warped compared to anyone else in this ship. Um, and that's also a rape scene, but it's presented in like such a different way from the type of rape scenes we usually see in cinema in a really kind of interesting yeah. comparison.
1: And then the consequence of this is, needless to say, that this baby winds up getting born. Who is this, like, adorable baby that you've spent the first, you know, third (laughs) of the movie or however long watching, which is paradoxical,
0: (laughs) you know? Yes.
1: And nothing ends well for anyone else in that section of the film. (laughs) Because they all wind up dead. Yeah. I don't remember the specifics of how any of them die. That was not the... What made an impact on this me yeah. in this film? I mean,
0: there was like there was a couple of there's a couple of really brutal on screen murders, and there's a couple of characters whose deaths just like happen, and you're like you don't even you're it's not even really clear. You just know that at some point they're gonna die because that's I mean they've been chewed up by the scenario yes. basically.
1: I mean everyone goes nuts because they're stuck in a box that's taking them toward a black hole. So you, needless to say you are going to start going crazy. And they ha- he has to do this thing, um, much like the bunker on Lost, which some of you may recall, where he has to, like, input the sort of... Robert Pattinson has to, once he's the only one left, um, has to, like, every day input, you know, like, everyone's fine, whatever, to keep the ship running. So there's this sort of, like, endless responsibility, you know, being tethered to this thing um, in every conceivable way and then he's stuck with this baby who he has to take care of and the last section of the movie jumps forward to when the daughter is a teenager
0: yeah which really confused me because for like a significant portion of that I thought she must just be one of the crew members because she looks a little bit like one of the other younger crew members and Robert Pattinson hasn't aged. He's got gray hair that, and like, a little bit of stuff on. He's his got screen. yeah, he's got slightly grayer hair. It's like fifteen years have passed, and he's now like the father to a teenage girl. And I was just like, I, I realize this is a dumb complaint. I was not like, please Can you make it clear?
1: <laughs> also, part <laughs> of the I mean, I also was like, yeah, he hasn't aged at all. But I thought I think it's clearly deliberate because part of I mean, most of what's going on by this point, and they're like approaching the black hole. I know is that there's this, like, teenage girl who doesn't know anybody else and hasn't ever known anybody else and has, like, a hot dad and so is kind of, like, too close to him, too often. And um, one of the things that um, Claire and me was talking about in the Q&A after the movie was that she was interested in like the taboo, which is a word that gets used in the movie frequently um, about other things, of the sort of father-daughter relationship, which is a theme that comes up a lot in her movies, the sort of like very intense father-daughter relationships, um, which she had with her father, to my understanding. And that there's this sort of like sexual charge between them, which is, of course, like the, the big taboo. And there's not really anything to be done about this because they're the only two people left alive in the world for the functional... For all functional purposes, right? And um, the movie ends with them just, like, going into the black hole together. And then the, like, light comes up on the screen. And it's very, like, it's the, the, what you were talking about earlier with the artists who clearly did that also. That's very kind of, like, bodily affecting, I found. It feels like you're rushing into it, too. Yes. Um, Yes. And I think it's the daughter who says, I'm going to go, even if you don't come with me. And then he decides to go with her, if I'm remembering correctly. And um, the clear implication is that they're going to die, but you don't know, because the movie just ends. I just found it, like, unbelievably compelling, but also just, like, existentially, completely, like, oh my god, (laughs) <laughs>
0: I, you see, I found it preferable to Interstellar, which I actually really want to rewatch now because Interstellar is obviously an amazing movie, and it's the first time that Christopher Nolan's really managed to have female characters that are good. But um, the ending is so fucking stupid that like it, it just made me absolutely hysterical after I saw it. I was like, "What are you doing?" Whereas now I kind of want to rewatch it. And now I know what happens at the end. But with this film, the ending of this is far preferable to me. Well, yes, the kind of dark, I mean ending obviously it's a much <laughs> i mean it's a fundamentally different kind of film but there's a lot I mean, of similarities i there. I love interstellar i think it's one of his best films for sure
1: well it's, it, they're an, it's an interesting comparison because they're both about parenthood in a lot of ways
0: and they're both about the void well, yes and the end of the world but
1: not in the same the the stuff about the void is the same at all because the void is resolved no. in
0: nolan's movie yeah. right and it's sort of historic like a a classic heroic Hollywood kind of blockbuster. I right? mean, that
1: movie was originally going to be a Spielberg movie, which I think you can tell on almost every level. Like, it's very much a Nolan movie, too. Yeah, the fucking But, like, it's really very much a Spielberg movie as well. But the thing from that movie that has stuck, stayed with me the most, and I think is the most haunting and sort of existentially haunting, is the part of that movie where, like, all the sort of video feeds come in at once of the McConaughey character's kids like sending him video messages only it's like their entire like twenty year span of their lives or whatever. And he has to watch them all in one go and just completely like bursts out crying and sort of loses it because he's missed you know, most of he's missed their entire childhoods basically. Which is obviously, you know, that's what happens to people. Not that most parents vanish into space for most of their children's lives, but you know, that's how life works. And I think I like that part the most of the movie. I mean it's the most upsetting but it's the most challenging and then the movie kind of has to tie everything together right Whereas this film is I mean for me this movie is essentially about the complete futility of reproduction but also the fact that like we we have nothing else like you
0: that's just what you have to do It's what you got to do. And so, I mean that, yes, but I was more thinking about the fact that the whole setup for the idea is like, we've got this amazing sort of technological advancement and we're doing this impressive mission where no one else has gone before. And the way we're doing that is just to brutalize a bunch of prisoners And it's just like, is there any point to this if the whole idea that, like, oh, we've advanced technologically, but society's not advancing at all? And people have this kind of inaccurate view that as we move forward, people are being better to each other and society's improving. And it's like, it's not, it's just like another horrible piece, repeat of history where prisoners are being used for science experiments.
1: I mean, I think that that's a big part of the movie for sure. And a huge portion of Denise filmography and just, like, essential to her work is uh, colonialism. She was raised in, um, I don't remember which country, but, like, French colonial, yeah, French colonial Africa, um, and has made multiple movies explicitly about that, but it sort of underpins everything that she has done in a way that is, I think, not unrelated to what is happening in this film either, even though it's not explicitly, like, a colonialist, you know, or, like, post-colonialist film, but that stuff is most potent for me in the middle section, right? Where everyone else is alive and it's the prison thing is more textually obvious. I mean, the whole thing is about prison. Like he's stuck there the whole time, obviously. But the fact that it begins and ends with the daughter makes it most about that to me. And you start with this baby who again is like just such a cute kid and he clearly really loves her. And then you find out that it's sort of She's been conceived through these like fucked up means, but he clearly like kind of has to love her anyway and has to protect her and take care of her because kind of the kinder thing would just be to like throw them both out of the spaceship, right? Like just be be done, have it over. Like what's the future of this situation? Like they're not getting out, but like the biological imperative is to just not do that, especially to a baby. So then by the end, it's. It's not that when you see them, when she's mostly grown up, that it's still a very kind of touching and moving and they clearly love each other, but like there is no, there's no future, right? Obviously. And yeah. so, so there isn't. And so they, you know, whatever happens to them happens, they die, they're gone. And the fact that the planet is dead also because of, you know, climate change pollution whatever really was a downer of an experience for me (laughs) because like what right because this is also sort of like you have kids and then like everyone's just gonna die is basically the thing but you have to you have to do it anyway and then you have these adorable babies and that's kind of just what what happens And, like, you hear her talk about it, and she always seems to think that her movies are, like, less depressing than they actually are. Or, like she said in the same interview that I was quoting earlier, like the last question the guy asked her was like, do you have hope for the future? And she was like, yes, you know, I know I shouldn't, but like the young people are just so, like they have so much energy and whatever. And I was like, this is just really messing with my head. Like,
0: And also the fact that she's just like, apparently very nice to be. Well, you own.
1: can tell that from just watching her talk. Like she's a total straight shooter, um, or at least that's what she seems like, but she seems very, she just seems like a lovely person. And I'm always really interested in female artists in that way because like, we're just so socialized to be nice people as women. And like, I'm not saying she isn't, but like, it all has to come out somewhere. Right. And so she just makes these really fucked up movies and that's clearly where it's coming out. But I think like, yeah, I just think that's what made the movie so potent to me is it is, it is fundamentally getting at the sort of paradox of humanity which is like we have to keep doing this, but it's like, everyone's just miserable all the time. Like, and so on. We continue into the void. Yeah, I, it's it's amazing, and it made me want to. I mean, I up, literally,
0: like, I literally like spent the afternoon having a picnic with my friends and the baby in the park, like uh-huh. hanging out with the baby, and then went to watch the baby movie and was like, oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> well, but the thing about it is like. And she has said this in interviews too that like she's never interested in making movies about characters she wouldn't be interested like want to spend time with. Which just like there are plenty of characters in her movies who are terrible, so it's not like they're all like.
0: Yeah, it's know. the situation that's terrible because with Robert Pattinson's character, even though I had this real like sense of threat for a lot of the first half of the film, because you just don't know that's what it. Just, what, I didn't have that. Like at what all the situation is. Yeah, I, I did, because I was just like, I'm worried, yeah. I'm really stressed. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's not like, oh, this guy's like a diamond in the rough. It's just like, he's, you know, he's just like a person, you know. And kind of the idea is that most of these people in this film are just people. And society is like, these are the worst people, so we're going to send them to a black hole for their crimes. But the thing that's making them awful to each other is like, in many cases... Their circumstance, even though they are, you know, murderers or whatever. We don't know a lot of their crimes. Yes, that's not the point. And then the only way that, like, Robert Pattinson can, his, like, whole rehabilitation now can only happen once the whole system is broken down and everyone's dead and he's just spending time with a baby. And then it's like, you're just like a normal man who's doing his best and is helping a baby.
1: And I think what saves the movie from being just purely, like, I want to fucking slit my wrist now and, like, never think about this film again is that you're not just watching these. Like, the the movie doesn't treat the people in a way that's, well, it's cruel to them in that the things that happen to them are cruel, but the movie doesn't treat them cruelly as people, if that makes any sense at all. Like, clearly she has empathy for them and understands the sort of, like, humanity of these characters.
0: Yeah, like Andre 3000's character. who
1: I liked a lot. And... I think that's pretty consistent across her movies, even when people are behaving badly. Like um, her other movie I've seen that is just like a complete masterpiece is white material, which um, Isabelle Huppert is in playing uh, this woman who owns a like coffee plantation, basically in, I don't know that the country in Africa is ever specified in that film, but anyway, there's like a, like, a civil war is basically erupting under her feet, and she's like, no, it's fine. I'm just gonna stay here and grow my coffee. And she's just like, white lady, and everyone's like, this is not gonna work out for you. And I don't come out of that movie liking that woman at all. Like, I don't think you're supposed to be like, oh, she just didn't get like, she's a colonizer, right? But you also don't walk out of it thinking, like, that awful bitch deserved to get, you know, murdered or whatever. I don't think she gets murdered at the end of the movie. But, um, she just has a really good grasp I think on people being very complicated which saves her movies from being just like really punishing experiences which they otherwise would be because she's not she's not pulling any punches initially this movie was going to be co-written with Zadie Smith and apparently Zadie Smith wanted them all to go back to Earth at the end (laughs) I
0: just like strained my eyes. I know the look you made was really them. great.
1: I wish everyone could have seen it. Um, so they didn't continue to work together because, like, oh my god. So the um, Film Society of Lincoln Center, which hosts the New York Film Festival, has a podcast where they just put up like the the talks and Q and As and stuff they do with filmmakers, and they had the one with the two of them after the press screening of this movie, which we'll link to. It was very interesting. But someone asked about the whole Zadie Smith debacle, and oh my God, her response, so bitchy. It was really delicious. I highly (laughs) recommend it to people. And she just, I mean, wow, it was really something. And she wasn't like straight up, I mean, she has to be sort of diplomatic, but... Not that diplomatic. And she said, you know, you know, I I read all her books like after this situation didn't really work out. Um, and she goes, she's, you know, she's a very good writer. I think she said, maybe she didn't even say that. She goes, you know, I have read all her books, but, you know, we're, I guess we're, we're, she said something like we're living on the same planet, but not in the same universe. That's for sure. And I was like, <laughs> 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 which was just tremendous. Just amazing. Like, this is the difference between this and Interstellar, right? Is that one of them, they come back, and the
0: other one, it's like, no, no. That's not how that's going to yeah. work out. And also, even though Interstellar is, like, a very kind of artistically complex movie in many ways, it's a fucking blockbuster. Like, the kind of characters are very simple. Yeah.
1: I mean, and that's fine. Fa- like, I mean, the ending of-, yeah. of Interstellar yeah, is yeah, stupid, yeah. but the problem is not that they go back to Earth.
0: There are other yeah, issues with
1: yeah. <laughs> <Yeah. that> movie. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, if you're making a tiny movie... This actually was her most expensive film to date. But um, still, compared to the standards of a Hollywood movie, not so much. They trained with the European Space Agency. I mean, I can't imagine. They also... It's in English because she was like, well, no one speaks French in space, so it has to be in Russian or English. And I don't speak Russian, so it's going to be in English. Which I thought made a lot of sense, but was kind of funny.
0: Yeah, yeah. I like that.
1: Uh yeah, those are my thoughts on High Life. Do you have any further
0: for anything further to add? Yeah, my only my only further thought is that um I feel like we've not highlighted Mia Goth Mm. enough, but she was really great in this film as sort of the kind of other prime delinquent in the cast, and I just find her a really, really interesting actress. I agree.
1: I thought she was really good.
0: She's only 25, which is nuts, because her her debut film was Nymphomaniac, which I've not seen and I'm not going to see. But like, that's wild to make that film at like 18. And then she got engaged to Shia LaBeouf, which is like, ugh. Um, but Are whatever. they
1: still engaged?
0: No, no, they broke up. And now Shia LaBeouf is dating uh, Robert Pattinson's ex, FKA Twigs. And I'm like, FKA Twigs, you have taken a step down. But that is, that is <laughs> enough celebrity gossip. Mia Goth basically exclusively does sort of very dark, weird, independent horror movies, often with a sexual element, which is like an interesting brand to have right because she's not like here's like a sexy actress she is someone who does this type of film which is a unique niche she is the only person i can think of who currently does this like her kind of general demographic in her career she did nymph Maniac, She did suspiria um she did a cure for wellness which i find fascinating um would not necessarily recommend it's a bad slash good film well do
1: you know what her <laughs> next thing coming up is
0: what emma Oh,
1: which is not the same. So it's possible she was typecast and is now. No, I think she was seeking out. these
0: out because I, w- I read an interview with her, and I was like, first of all, very mature. Even I, I realize that's like condescending to say something, someone that's like four years younger than me. But I was like, you are very sophisticated, and it seems like she gets like a, a lot of scripts through her door, and was like very excited to work with Claire Denis. You know, so this is her yes. sort of zone, she's definitely interested in this this type of work.
1: Oh, I'm sure, but it's I. It is possible that there, that was also, once she established that she was interested in it, that was all that was coming. But she's playing Harriet Smith and Emma, which is a very good role. Unfortunately, some of the other casting in that adaptation is questionable. So I may or may not be seeing it, depending on the reviews. Emma is my favorite Austin. Speaking of which, if, if you have managed to make it to the end of this podcast about a movie very few people have seen, Hello, listeners. We love you. <laughs> yes, thank you. Um, go see High Life if you haven't seen it. Uh, we have for one more week uh, a poll on our Patreon for our summer book club pick. It is extremely close, so your vote can count. The four choices are Emma by Jane Austen, Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte, North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell, and Lady Audley's Lady Audley's. Secret by Mary Elizabeth Braddon, all of which are excellent choices, as the people clearly agree agree with because they're sort of neck and neck. And um, our Patreon subscribers can vote in that poll. There are little descriptions of all the books. Uh, so you have a few days left to do that, if you would like. Um, you can find our Patreon at www.patreon.com. Thank you, as always, to all of our Uh, patreon subscribers we really really appreciate you uh it's very validating and helps keep our podcast alive if you cannot subscribe to our patreon at this time or if you're just feeling extra generous we would also really appreciate a review on itunes stitcher or wherever else you uh, listen to podcasts that also helps us find new listeners uh and otherwise gavia where can people find your work on the internet
0: Yeah, you can find my writing on the Daily Dot and you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And you can find me on Twitter at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter
1: at overinvestedpod, on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.